Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on. Are you going to bring up the CAPE ratio? Because I'm not a fan of the CAPE ratio. In the first part of this two-part podcast, we discussed the impact of geopolitical risk on individual portfolios, and more importantly, how we should treat it. Today, what we're going to discuss is more to the fundamentals of asset allocation, what drives the asset allocation decisions, and where we are thus far in 2019, how we should be positioned going forward through the remainder of this year and into 2020. We'll be answering questions such as, what is the recessionary risk? What is the valuation that we see within equities? What is the opportunity set within fixed income? Where are some of the unique opportunities that we should be focusing on that perhaps we're not? Listen on. This is Investments on Planet. Welcome to Investments Unplugged. My name is Philip Peterson. I'm the Chief Investment Strategist with Manulife Investment Management. And today we're going to continue our conversation with Jamie Robertson and Alex Richard of our asset allocation team, both based in Toronto, on the positioning of their asset allocation funds. In particular, we're going to talk about the fundamentals that are driving their decisions going forward, what we've seen in the last six months, perhaps what we're likely to see over the next six months, and how things might change. I think we are in a neutral environment. That is, the fundamentals are decent, but they're not screaming bullish, nor are they screaming bearish. While we do have some economic risk on the horizon, it's not to the effect that we would raise the recession flag. I think what we're going to walk away with is a prudent approach to asset allocation, where we are, which is pretty much the midpoint of 2019, and what we should expect or how we should be assessing the environment and what we should be looking for that will guide our asset allocation decisions in the back half of 2019. Welcome back to Investments Unplugged. I am very pleased to rejoin with Jamie Robertson, Head of Canadian Asset Allocation, Alex Richard, Portfolio Manager on the team, to discuss uh, in in part one, gentlemen, we talked about geopolitical risk in terms of how we should face geopolitical risk, how you put that in context of of, uh, the fundamentals, largely how you need to discount the geopolitical risk uh, because it doesn't often turn into a fundamental consequence. So now I want to get into, okay, so if we've done that, if we said, look, let's take a step back Uh, as we say, vanquish fear and panic. Let's look at the environment rationally, stick to the process. What is the process or or what does that look like in terms of portfolio positioning, how that's changed over the last, say, six months? And then we'll talk about uh, what we see going forward. So first, I'll let you choose if you want to use the balanced or the growth, whichever benchmark you think is is best uh, for the audience. But how has that evolved over the last, say, six to 12 months? first, and then we'll look at the the future prospects. 
Well, certainly over the last six to 12 months, we had run a overweight to equities. Um, we continued to, to prefer equities to, to the, the opportunity set within fixed income. And we ran that pretty consecutively, basically for the last year, year and a half. Early in the month of May, when we took a step back and looked at where we stood uh, in terms of what sentiment was looking like, uh, in terms of what the market uh, technical position was, which was quite clearly we were in a situation where we'd had you know, a 20% return off the lows in December without a correction. We were right up against all-time highs. Um, and there was certainly reason to believe that we were starting to see some soft patches on the economic side. Um, so in the first week of May, over a four or five day period, we took we did two tranches where we went from being, you know, two, two and a half percent overweight. And we took us right down to neutral in that first week of May. We thought that that was uh, the prudent thing to do. It was a bit of uh, pre-mortem regret avoidance because when you're sitting, having seen that type of, of uninterrupted advance in the market and up against all time highs, um, as well, if you start to see some some clouds developing on the horizon, you certainly didn't want to be looking back at two months later and saying, well, wow, that was a good opportunity to reduce risk. Um, so we went ahead and did that. We, we got back to neutral. Um, I think we're, we're very comfortable with that position. I don't think that, that there's a justification right now to be going underweight because with interest rates where they are, uh, equities do continue to be a, a, a compelling um, value or a compelling alternative. And if you don't have a high level of, of confidence in data that's showing that we're heading into a recession anytime soon, um, then, you, then you do not want to be underweight. So we are, we're, we're sitting here neutral. And I think that what we're doing is looking for the next signal to distinguish against noise um, that gives us the go-ahead to, to either add um, some incremental equity exposure um, or to go the other way. But I would think that um, over the next six to nine months, I suspect that we, we may see an opportunity to, to add to equities over that time horizon. Jamie, I, you know, I love what I'm hearing. We think alike, I think, in terms of asset allocation, in terms of what we see in the environment. In our model portfolio, we did the same thing at the end of March. We reduced our equity weight by about 5%, bringing it to neutral for you know, basically all the same reasons that you're discussing. Uh, and we too, we're, it's like looking for a signal. Now, when I look at it, this is interesting. I'll put it this way. I perhaps am a little bit more, I would say bearish, but maybe a little bit more concerned. You know, you, you're a little bit more optimistic. I'm not going to say bullish, but, you know, I would say while I'm looking at the glass and saying it's half empty, you're looking at the glass saying it's half full, but we both agree with how much water is in that glass. We do indeed. Right. Yeah. That is. And, and so this is how we get to the positioning of being neutral. And I agree with you that we're don't, we don't see any of the typical signs of recession. There's nothing present today that say, aha, you know what, there we go. That's one of the clear signs. We need to be more concerned. So why is everybody so worried about the yield curve then? Well, th that is a good question, right? I mean, there's, there's a theory out there saying that, oh, well, with everything that the Fed has done over the last 10 years, the yield curve is probably not reflecting where it actually would be if the Fed had done nothing. Would it be inverted? Does it even matter, I guess? That's only one data point. There's so many others that you have to look at to confirm Right. Everything I've, I've learned in this business, learned from you is confirm, confirm, confirm. Right. You don't just look at technicals. You got to look at technicals and you got to look at the fundamentals and you got to look at sentiment. You got to look at everything. So. On that, I think positioning neutral in, in from an asset allocation perspective is very prudent. What are you looking for to add to equities? Would it be a sell off or uh, that wouldn't be just justified by the fundamentals? 
or are you looking for for something else? Well, I think it could be could be one of two things. It could be, to your point, you know, if we if we were to see a sell off here that got sentiment to such extreme levels along the lines of what we saw basically in in the in the fourth quarter of last year, you know, that would certainly be something that would start to to get us a little bit interested. Um, sentiment is is if, if you just look at investors, um, the AAII survey of, of bullish investors, it's it's pretty muted at this particular point. So sentiment is is certainly on balance something that is more constructive for the market going forward than than, than less constructive. It would be very, very nice to see, you know, a more substantial pullback because it would be great to be able to buy um, buy some in, in an oversold condition with, with sentiment very negative as long as the economic backdrop remained, remained pretty much intact. Um, but my suspicion is, is that is it will probably go through a bit of a summer where we will trace out a bit of a, of a choppy pattern here. It will be a little bit frustrating it might, and, and it will be filled with with bullish sentiment at the top and bearish sentiment at the bottom of that range. But I think that if we can, if we could, were to go sideways here for the next five to six months um, and started to see that economy starting to to bear fruit and, and the overall global economy starting to look a little better, you know, China starting to turn up a little bit, Europe, can, you know, has had a bit of a fits and starts in terms of its uh, ability to gain any economic momentum. Um, but I think if we just saw a sideways market that then um, started to see some improving fundamentals underneath it, then that would be another opportunity for, for us to perhaps uh, add some equity exposure. And I have to ask only because um, we're, we're into the summer months and the market did peak out April 30th. Sell in May and go away. Well, you know, I, I think it is. We have to acknowledge that the market is lower now than, and in fact, you know, through the month of May, um, it was pretty much on a downtrend. Uh, how much does seasonality play into this? Boy, that's a tough one. Because I know, you know, everyone everyone talks about sell in May and go away. And I guess that, you know, lo and behold, we were selling the first week of May. So I guess we kind of, um, um, kind of, uh, sort of coincidentally moved into that. Um, seasonality is not really part of our process. Um, so certainly something you, you want to be, have a vague awareness of because anytime it's part of the narrative. But really, I, I, I don't put a lot of, of stock into that. I'm not sure how you, if you sell in May and go away, how do you, how do you change your mind? Um, is kind of the the number one thing that I think of. November first. November first. You buy it. There you yeah, go. That's right. Okay. Um, well, that'd be easy because that way we could all take the summer off and and, and enjoy life. But um, no, I think that that um, really it's the seasonality is is not something that that we capture in our in our process. We're just strictly looking at the the fundamentals of the economy, valuation, sentiment, and 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 the technical situation. And on the equity side, when we look at it, valuation seems fair to attractive? What, what do you see? The question around U.S. stocks is, how expensive are they? And it really depends on what kind of metrics you're, you're looking at. So if you look at uh, metrics like the equity risk premium, which basically takes into account that the risk-free rate in the U.S. is extremely low, then obviously U.S. stocks are not that expensive. But if you take a look at other measures which normalize profits, then you know, U.S. stocks are extremely expensive. So Are you going to bring up the CAPE ratio? Because I'm not a fan of the CAPE ratio. It's one of the metrics that does account for the profitability cycle in the U.S., but we have other metrics as well that we backtest and, and look at as well, which points to similar findings as the CAPE ratio, albeit not to the same extent. Uh, so I think where we generally land is that U.S. stocks are kind of moderately expensive today, although you can probably justify it to some degree 
given kind of uh, the, the low rates. <clears throat> With that said, if you look internationally, I think that the case for international valuations is, is very clear today, but with that comes uh, much more challenge fundamentals. So looking out on a strategic type of horizon out next five years with some assumption that fundamentals are probably going to improve overseas, then I think that's a much more attractive area. But today on a more short-term basis, uh, the, the U.S. definitely seems to be the, the place to be. Okay. So from an asset allocation pr- perspective within equities, how are you positioned overweight, underweight? So I think if you look at uh, the strategic positioning of our portfolios, we tend to shy away from the U.S. quite a bit. And then within our more opportunistic sleeve, we've been adding over the last uh, several weeks to maybe a month here to the U.S. equities as we've decided to take some profits. And then other areas geographically, what do you? Th- Europe is one that you know I, we always struggle with in terms of uh, what drives European uh, the European markets. I mean, it's so closely tied to Asia. Uh, valuation is is often cheaper in Europe than what you see in the United States, but that's just been historically the case for any number of reasons: lack of growth, you know, lack of recognition to the shareholder and so on. So what, what are your thoughts on Europe right now? What's, what's kind of interesting in the valuation work that I was uh, talking beforehand is that uh, the findings are actually remarkably consistent outside the U.S. is that the U.S. is one of the sole countries that is really showing up as expensive, whereas most other countries are, for the most part, equally undervalued. You know, this speaks to your what we've referred to, the American exceptionalism, which is you know, we're in, we're in a world where over the last few years, given tax cuts and some, some fiscal actions, that, you know, U.S. growth has been more robust and more consistent than, than a lot of other regions. Uh, it's got the premier tech companies uh, making up the index, so we've got a little bit of the FANG app action happening. Um, that's where the growth is, and in a market like this that is moving away from value and, and, and putting a big price on growth, um, that is, that's all contributed to this phenomenon where U.S. has been sort of the only game in town. Um, it's very tempting, um, certainly, to believe that that will continue uh, in the indefinite future. But from a strategic standpoint, when we look that five-year period out, um, very difficult to, be- to believe that that level of U- American market exceptionalism will will be able to prevail over over that time horizon. So that's one of the one of the the key issues that we watch then on an ongoing basis, just to see how markets respond um, during periods of distress. I mean, I think that that in the fourth quarter, it was an interesting um, observation that the market gave you, which was that during that time period, emerging markets actually outperformed the U.S. Um, and we've had periods over here just in the last few weeks when we've had this this period when when U.S. markets have declined. And I think that speaks to some recognition of the value that exists in those markets that, that people, typically when you get any sort of risk-off move, people, you know, throw out the EM and the international stocks to start with. Um, in this time, it would, the selling was more centered in the U.S. on both of those instances. So there is some, some signs that that, that that's an aircraft carrier that might be able to might be starting to, to to turn a little bit. And what about let's shift gears to Canada because this is one that I think a lot of investors have struggled with over the last uh, couple of years, and that it hasn't quite kept up pace with the United States. Um, it, it seems to march to its own beat. Um, what are your thoughts on the Canadian stock market? Well, strategically, we we like the the, the Canadian market. It's got you know, higher dividend yields than than the U.S. It's got a, a similar growth trajectory, and it's got a more attractive attractive valuation. That's not to say that there's not specific issues to the Canadian market. You know, we're made up 
to a large extent our index is a lot of financials and a, and a lot of energy. Well, energy has been an area that um, has been persistently unloved and undervalued um, for a considerable period of time, and it's difficult to pinpoint when that, that situation might, might start to correct itself. But clearly, we're into a situation where you know, energy stocks globally are, are out of favor, and certainly Canada with our issues around takeaway capacity, um, that's, that's particularly acute. So we are definitely dragged down by, by um, our exposure to energy. And then at the same time, obviously, our banks are, are generally perceived to be highly, highly geared to a, a highly indebted Canadian consumer. Um, one, of our, one, of the, one of our concerns and one of the concerns in the marketplace was that, you know, you would have um, uh, when rates were higher just three or four months ago that you would have on refis, you would have a bit of a payment shock for, for people renewing their mortgages. That's virtually been eliminated at this particular point. Um, and the data coming out of Canada has been pretty robust. Two months ago, we had the, the best job numbers in, I think, in history. So it's a little bit confounding, which is that you've got some, some clear risks that are on the horizon, some that are, some that are dissipating and some that are being uh, mitigated by, by sheer valuation compression. So we like it over the strategic, over the, of a strategic time frame. Um, shorter term, it's, again, more difficult to time exactly when energy may come back into vogue or, or when um, concerns about Canadian banks will, will dissipate. But Canadian banks are, are when I talk to some of the managers who run, you know, who run portfolios for our multi-asset portfolios, Canadian bank stocks are cheap. And that's just uh, something that won't prevail um, indefinitely. I think the big difference that people need to recognize with respect to the Canadian banks is that the situation with the Canadian banks uh, even in the worst case scenario, is not the same as what we saw in the United States in 2008. Absolutely Where correct. you had small regional banks levered to a small economy, levered to just one aspect of that economy, condos or whatever it is. Our Canadian banks, most recently, if you look at the results out of the Canadian banks, while the Canadian side was perhaps flat, the U.S. side, and this is what a lot of people forget, which makes up in, in some cases half of the bank's business, was very strong. And so they're very well diversified across business line, across geography. It's unlikely that we're going to see. And I would agree completely that the banks, from a valuation perspective, look quite attractive. At the very least, you can sit on that very attractive dividend um, and, uh, and just let that manage you through whatever potential volatility we might see. Absolutely. And that's what you get when you're buying you know, the Toronto Index. Mm-hmm. So do you like do you like the banks then? Do, are you do you, uh, out, with respect to your Canadian weight? Do you skew it a little bit more towards towards the banks? We don't we don't have a dedicated exposure to to Canadian financials at this point, um, and um, but we get that through you know our various managers um, as a result of that. So we're a little bit underweight on on balance through those managers. So we're aware of that. Um, so again, that would be one of the the um, dedicated exposures that we watch very closely. Now let's shift gears to fixed income. So we got a little bit of flavor of what you're doing on the equity side. On the fixed income side, we've seen yields come down as much as they have. Uh, what? How are you allocated there? On the fixed income side, uh, some of our more uh, tactical portfolios um, had been overweight duration through um, through the first quarter here. Um, so, for, but for the most part, we've got our exposures are you know to core bonds. Um, and then through our active managers, obviously, our active managers have the ability to move around within the duration area in high yield. 
um, and to, to foreign bonds as well. Um, we do have an ongoing dedicated exposure to emerging market debt in, in the opportunistic portion of the portfolio. Um, and the reasons for that is, is really twofold, one of which is um, that is a market that over the last 10 or 15 years has had a massive improvement in credit quality. Um, so maybe 15 years ago, people's perception of emerging market um, debt was was correct, which was that it was for the most part high yield or or junk in 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 its in its ratings. Um, now you're talking about an asset class that's 60 or 65 percent investment grade. So it's it's a very high quality um, uh, asset from the perspective of its of its credit characteristics, and as well, it's still yielding 400 basis points more than the U.S. So again, it's another situation where. Uh, where I think the market has probably mispriced a little bit how good the credit quality is, and that gives us an opportunity to, to pick up that additional yield. Alex, in the opportunistic sleeve, and this is, I think, something unique with what you have available to you in the portfolios, it's not just a static asset allocation where you're making changes on the margin. You have a, a 10% sleeve where you can uh, take positions that are uh, are different than your static um, positioning, static policy mix. What does your opportunistic sleeve look like today? Um, and I, I would only highlight one thing is that that policy mix is, is not quite static. It's something that we review on an annual basis and we update. Um, so it is actively managed, just not to the same extent as our opportunistic sleeve would be. And in terms of our the, the positioning in the opportunistic sleeve today, as Jamie pointed out, we own some emerging market bonds, which we think is, is quite attractive. Uh, we also hold a lot of uh, short-term duration uh, bond assets. So specifically, if you look at what you're getting in the, the short-term market compared to longer-term bonds, you're, you're getting quite attractive yields, but with a lot less duration, i.e. kind of fixed income risk, if you want to think about it that way. Um, so we believe that's a bit more attractive. So we're holding on to a lot of those securities. Uh, and as we've mentioned before, we've been shifting a little bit out of our international exposures into uh, U.S. equities. Overall, how do you, if you had to forecast what the portfolios look like, how you're going to be positioned over the coming 12 months, how things might change. How are you leaning? This is always under ongoing discussions. And, and I think that really what it boils down to at this point is, you know, are we going to see really sustained economic weakness, right? For At this particular point, we do not have a recession baked into our, into our forecast. So we're sort of in your camp, which is there's really no um, signposts that tell you that, that any sort of recession is, is imminent. Um, so I think that just in the fullness of, of time, if, if we were to be sitting here in, um, in, in six months, confident that the Fed has actually is been able to elongate this, this, this recovery, um, then I think that that starts to be a, a position to adding, adding to equities. But that's predicated upon you know, a lot of moving parts that would, that would get us to that point. I tend to think that, you know, that the Fed will be successful, um, or I shouldn't even say the, the, the Fed will be successful. I think that the marketplace or the economy will be successful in absorbing this sort of short-term bout of weakness, and it will, it will reassert itself and start growing at that 2 and 2.5% two and again. Um, and we'll, we'll start to see expectations for that recession that most people are thinking is 2020 for the most part. Um, we'll start to, to that will start to dissipate a little bit, and people will start to, to um, push out their their forecast for for a recession. And and if and when that happens, that would be an opportunity to to, to add to some equities. Um, and just to play, just be you know, on one hand and on the other hand, if we started to see significant deterioration in in the job market or or in in a number of various 
regions or, or industries, and we started to think that a recession was more imminent, then, then we would go the other way. So See, now, now you just played it like an economist. I did, On the one I? hand, things can get a lot better. On the other hand, things can get a lot well, worse. Well, we're going yeah. to take the evidence as it comes, and we will apply our process to, to the, that in front of us. Well, that reminds me, one time I had uh, a client say to me when um, the last time we were like this, which was 2015, maybe 2016, and, and we were neutral in our asset allocation. A client said to me, he says, it looks like you're hiding behind your asset allocation. And he didn't mean it as a criticism, and nor did I take it as a criticism. I took it as, yes, this is the prudent approach to do right now where we're literally coming to a fork in the road, and I don't know which side to take. And so if, if that is the, the body of evidence isn't, isn't sufficient to, to make, a, to make a, a bold statement or, or take on additional risks. Exactly. I think that, that, is, that actually is a much better way of phrasing it than I could ever have possibly phrased it at all. Um, so let's leave it with this. Any last thoughts in terms of what you think for the portfolios? Um, and actually an advisor experience, or not advisor, sorry, a client experience in the portfolios um, over the coming say 12 to 24 months what are you trying to achieve and what should we expect well i think we're we're trying to achieve what we always try to achieve which is that we're building portfolios that we believe um, have a couple of characteristics one of which we're building portfolios with the highest expected risk adjusted returns and we're also building portfolios to achieve our clients objectives so I would continue to, to focus on the fact that, you know, in our growth portfolio, we would expect to generate over a cycle equity-like returns with lower levels of risk. And on the on more conservative side, we're looking to generate above, above average um, returns um, than the fixed income market would with, with same, similar levels of risk. And we have a lot of levers to pull that. We've got um, active managers populating these portfolios that have, have shown over time to have the ability to generate significant amount of alpha. So that gives me confidence that, that we'll be able to achieve those type of, of uh, returns that, that our investors require. Um, and as well, our process will ensure that, that we're pointed in the right direction um, for the most part of the time and that we will do things in a very uh, measured and risk-aware um, fashion. So that's, um, that's what we're going to continue to do. Excellent. Thank you. I'm not going to let you guys go without a quick lightning round. So oh, here, here, we here we go. Yeah, I know. Um, we're heading into the summer months. Alex, favorite summertime activity? Golfing. Golfing. Now, uh, should I ask what your handicap is? Do you calculate? I imagine you would, but. I'm not shy about it. I'm like 40 over. <laughs> See, I often it's, it's say it's questionable why I keep playing golf, but I enjoy it. I just say my <laughs> handicap is that I've got a really bad slice. That's about it, and and I often not uh, try to to avoid keeping score. It's all about just having fun out there. Jamie, favorite summertime? Yeah, my my handicap is 14 because that's how many clubs I've got in my bag. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Out, outside of golfing, what do you do? Well, I've just got a cottage up north, so it seems like I'm going to spend the summer playing with the septic tanks, sump pumps, and generators. So home renovations, that's fantastic. Uh, Alex, over under on the, uh, on the Fed cutting rates, if they were going to do it, would it be, let's say, I'll, I'll give you the date um, off the top of my head. I'm not even sure if they're, they're meeting in October, but let's say uh, October. Uh, before October or after? Uh, eh, sometime in Q4. <laughs> oh, nice so, answer. So I know. He's walking the line there. <laughs> Jamie, like do you have one. a different opinion on that? No. Okay. I think I think Q4 makes a lot of sense. Well, I think the team should be consistent anyway. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to ca- cause Yeah, when we're guessing we, that we should be consistent. Okay. Yeah. Um, as far as recessionary pressures, when do you see them emerge? Now, I'm not calling for a recession, but recessionary pressures. Uh, let's use the middle of 2021. 
Do we see increased recessionary pressure before the middle of 2020-21 or after? Oh, so you've already pushed us out past past consensus of 2020. Well, exactly. I mean, yep. I, I'm just assuming that everyone says 2020, we're all going to be wrong. Correct. So which means totally let's agree. use two years out and yep. saying, do we start to see risks emerge before that or after that? And I'll Who was that I'll for? Just, was that for me or Alex? That was for you, <laughs> That Darren. was for me. Okay. Yeah, and, and I'll just say a colleague of mine always likes to say, Australia's gone 28 years without a recession. Why not? Yeah. I'm not quite of that mind, but where do you I, fall? I think that, you know, when you think about um, the way this re- this recovery has occurred over the last nine years, when it's been, you know, more of a stroll than a sprint, um, I guess I just fail to be totally convinced that the imbalances that we are seeing now have any comparison to what we were seeing in 06, 07 or 98, 99. So I think that, that on balance, this is, a, this is an economy that will be able to continue to plod along at this 2% rate for much longer than people expect. So I would say that, that we're going to be, by mid-2021, we're still going to be in reasonably good shape. All right, I like that answer. Alex, last book you read. Pass. <laughs> Jamie, last book you I don't know the title of that one. Jamie, last book you read. <laughs> um, predictable Irrationality, which is a very interesting one, actually. Talk about how we're wrong about so many things and how, how predictable we, we can be in, in, um, in making um, poor decisions. We often see that a lot in terms of, like you mentioned the AAII bull bear survey. And ironically, when the market is overly bullish, that's when you should be selling and overly bearish, that's when you should be buying. So that speaks exactly to that, that we are, we are predictable in our irrationability. Um, I'll just say the same thing we saw in December, where we had the largest outflows of equity and balance funds in the month of December. That was uh, since um, 2008. So Again, you know, should be buying, everyone is selling. Um, Jamie, over to you in terms of uh, last, uh, last Netflix binge watch or last movie you saw. I'll, I'll let you pick either one. Oh, geez, you know, I, I have to say that I'm being um, swept up into raptor fever at this particular point. So my Netflix account has been, has been pretty quiet and, and um, uh, I'm struggling to think of the last movie I saw, to be honest with you. Alex, so this will be, might be an easy one. Because, It'll be better. What was that? Well, okay, well, that, but then, then uh, I was also going to say, given the fact that this is probably going to air after the, the playoffs of the, of the Raptors, here's a chance, Alex, to be the, the uh, perfect prognosticator. Do the Raptors win? We can edit this afterwards if, if they uh, – you can give two answers and we'll just splice it in there. How about that? You know, one of the downsides of working so closely with your team is that, you know, Mockon's kind of converted me to a Raptors fan, so I think their odds are pretty good that they're, they'll win. Jamie, you agree? I think they have to win. I agree. I think, I I think, think they, they have to win. And you know what? The, the, probably the, the good news is people will listen to this after the fact. They won. They go, those guys knew. Yeah, exactly. They knew. How smart were they? Yeah, exactly. You know, we're, we're a data-driven team, and I think the odds are 33 to 1, I think, is the historical record when a team is, is up 3-1 in the... You're doing your homework, Alex. That's very, very... I'm really impressed. Makan's really corrupting me. Uh, well, you know, I, I'll blame him for everything. Uh, last question for either of you. Over, under on the S&P 500 um, for... The uh, let's see the full year 2019. I'm trying to think. We are up about 12 percent. So let's say the over under at um, at uh, let's say the over under at 15. To give a little bit of room here, are we going to be? Uh, will we see the S&P 500 up more than 15 percent for the full year of 2019 or under that? Alex, do you want to weigh in? 
you know, the, the target I have in mind is roughly 3,000 on the S&P. I think that's where we're kind of capped in terms of multiples. So that would be the, the off, upside I have in mind. Which is almost right. I would, if I do the quick calculation in my head, um, will be slightly under the 15%, I think, uh, at that point. Uh, Jamie, your thoughts? I'm the same boat. I think that we end the, end the year higher. Um, it may be a little bit of a meander to get there, but I think we end the year in that 3,000 range or maybe even a little higher than that. On well, that good news, gentlemen, we're going to end it right there. Thank you very much for joining us over these past two episodes. I think they've been very enlightening. One, in terms of how to deal with geopolitical risk and how you face it in your portfolios, which is largely don't uh, uh, focus on the fundamentals, continue to focus on the process. Geopolitical risk is more noise or fog. I'm going to put it that way. It's, it's fog. As long as you can see the road immediately in front of you, you stay on that path. And then secondly, what you are doing inside of your asset allocation portfolios uh, on behalf of our clients. So thank you very much for joining us on Investments Unplugged. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Well, I think the last two episodes have been a very good conversation with our guests, Alex Richard and Jamie Robertson, with respect to how they're approaching asset allocation. What I think was quite interesting is that our approach, my team's approach to asset allocation, where we are thus far in 2019, and their approach is very, very similar, and that is decisively neutral. The economic environment and the, the market environment, both on the fixed income side and equity side, warrant remaining in equities to the tune of approximately 60% or, or uh, whatever the neutral position is. Um, with respect to the balance portfolio and growth portfolio, which would be you know, a little higher, a little bit below that, uh, and also how we should be treating fixed income, which is at this point, there aren't good reasons to be overly bullish. There aren't good reasons to be overly bearish. And what we're doing is we're waiting for a signal. And I think that's something good that investors should walk away with, is that as we discussed in the first episode, there is a fair bit of geopolitical risk with respect to trade tensions, with respect to where we are in the economic cycle and so on, and what the Fed may or may not do over the coming months. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we should be overly defensive. At the same time, because the opportunity set in front of us isn't as robust as where we were, say, at the end of 2016 or beginning of 2017, uh, it doesn't also mean that we should be more defensive because we don't see that recessionary risk on the horizon. A neutral position right now isn't a bad place to be. As I said and commented to Jamie, you know, perhaps we're hiding behind our asset allocation right now, but until we get a better signal, it is a prudent approach to take. So let's think about that as we head into the back half of 2019. This has been Philip Peterson with Investments Unplugged. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investments to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investments and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife Mutual Funds are managed by Manulife Investments, a division of Manulife Asset Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently. 
and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede know your client suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.